Hello, my name's Mark Muller-Stewart and this is the Beyond Borders Scotland podcast, where ideas enlighten. This week, Beyond Borders crosses the Atlantic to Martha's Vineyard in America to the home of a friend of mine, 95-year-old Rose Styron, poet, international human rights and social justice activist, founding member of Amnesty International USA, journalist, hostess, mother of four, and wife and partner of the celebrated American novelist Bill Styron. I talked to Rose at her legendary summer house overlooking the Vineyard Sound during this year's Thanksgiving. Not so much about her poetry, but her recently published memoir, Beyond This Harbour, which takes the reader through her extraordinary life, in which she came to meet numerous characters and luminaries from the world of politics and the arts, who went on to help to both shape and define much of the 20th, if not the 21st century. So why not sit back, grab a festive drink, and listen to this somewhat light-hearted romp through the life and times of one of Martha's Vineyard's most remarkable and iconic public intellectuals and society hostesses, friend to both presidents and the oppressed alike, the irrepressible Rose Stein. I'm here in the wonderful Rose Styron's legendary house <laughs> on High Hedge Lane, which looks over the sound of Vineyard Haven uh, and has played host to all manner of events and characters that I think probably have uh, characterised and helped um, define the 20th, if not the 21st century. So really, Rose, we, we've been friends for 15 years, but of course, your story goes way back beyond there. Well, let me take you back to your, you know, I suppose, your first place then. That was back in Baltimore, and you were born in 1928, Rose Burgunda, and I think it was rather stable uh, upbringing, and... As I understand it, both your parents were German Jewish and whatnot. Can you just give us a bit of a flavour of that time? Um, what well, was it like in Baltimore. Well, my they were nominally Jewish, right. shall I say? My mother's parents came from Germany in 1830. Right. My father, I don't know that he had much of a Jewish background, if any, except I met some uh, a cousin once who, uh, but nobody practiced Judaism. I was not, I was brought up as a good Quaker. Yeah. We'd, we'd had three or four uh, generations in uh, Baltimore Friends School, which is the oldest or one of the oldest Friends Schools. And so I, my, my family was all devoted to Quakerism. But in World War II, when I was a little girl, I was told by my mother that uh, technically I was Jewish because her great-grandparents had come and they were Jewish when they arrived in Baltimore in 1830 so that I should know how awful it was for Jewish children like me. Yeah. in Europe, and that's the first I knew about it. But we never practiced it, no. and I've never been to Israel. And, of course, what's going on there now just shocks me and depresses me. 
I mean, I, I read in your book that you did once try and ask your mother about a photograph or of your relatives on her side and she just told to, you to knock it off. That's right. When she was 100, on her 100th birthday, she said, knock it off, Rose. You may be interested in my past. I'm not, yeah. period. Well, it's also something about her, but it also says something about you because I think you've always been very forward-looking. And um, just tell me, I remember reading in the book that in, um, I think it's just before the Second World War, you, you went off with your mother to Mexico and um, toured there. And did you meet Diego Rivera? I did, because I was 11, and it was the first time I'd been taken anywhere with my mother and my decade-plus older sister. Yeah. Uh, and we went to Mexico, and I'd been studying art at the Maryland Institute as a little girl. And I said to my mother, I want to meet Diego Rivera. <laughs> Somehow, she managed it, yeah. and it was extraordinary. You talk about visiting his um, studio full of dolls, skulls, masks, dishes, and a few paintings. But did you manage to see Frida Kahlo there, or do you think you saw her? Well, I don't know. I saw a woman, uh, rather elegant, walking behind the studio t to wherever, and didn't think about it until... I grew up and knew about Frida Kahlo and wondered if that was she, but I didn't meet her. Yeah, brilliant. So you were really a child of the Great Depression, I suppose. Yes. And, and, then, and then suddenly war happens. Uh, you've got this passion for art. I mean, what was it like living through the war years for you? And how aware were you of what was happening in Europe? Well, I was aware of a lot more than some Baltimore children would have been because my big brother, uh, who had just graduated from Dartmouth, enlisted in the Navy. And I adored him. I mean, he was a lot older than me. But we went to visit him on Whidbey Island uh, off uh, the West Coast. And so I learned a lot from him, and I was very concerned always about the war. And when it was over, I was convinced that America was not only a permanent good guy, but would really save the rest of the world. Amazing. Well, well, but I was still in school then, so little did I know. Well, you then go to Wesley College, where in 1946, I think you came across a young JFK who was running for his first That's seat. That's right. <laughs> what was that like? And I think, actually, you were asked to go and interview him with about three other girls. Well, I wasn't really interviewing, but I was the only freshman who was interested in politics. Yeah. So the upper-class uh, political group took me into their fold, and I got to meet and talk with uh, JFK. Um, I can't say I really interviewed him, but I was... What was he like? Oh, he, he was handsome, charming, smart. Uh, I wanted him to be president, but that never occurred to me. It didn't occur to you? No, he hadn't, he didn't even... Yeah. He never run for office when I met him. Yeah. You seem to have this habit of, just like Diego, 
uh, Riviera of, yeah, of, just of, of, of just suddenly chance. bumping into yep. people who have come to define much of our of our world because you then move from Wesley College where you were studying poetry under Richard Wilbur and, and you go to John Hopkins University right. and then suddenly you're asked to to help guide around the university Dylan Thomas in right. 1951. That was true and a wonderful, wonderful day and experience because we became friends after that. But it was quite a funny day because I was asked as the brand new poet on campus uh, to take him around the campus on his first trip to the USA and to Baltimore. And I was told only uh, to make sure he didn't have anything to drink. (laughs) (laughs) Were you successful in that? (laughs) No. Because halfway through the afternoon, he took uh, a bottle that was strapped underneath his pants to his left leg and drank it all. And then at about 5.30, he uh, took a flask out of his other leg pants (laughs) and drank it all. He didn't offer you anything. Didn't offer me anything (laughs) at all. And I told him, you know, as we went up to uh, my... Uh, teacher's empty room, uh, which was above the auditorium where he was speaking, uh, that we would have to go downstairs at six o'clock where he was speaking. So at maybe five or ten minutes of six. And what was his performance like? What? What was his performance like? Well, before we got to the performance, (laughs) when I told him it was time to leave, he was standing over my very elegant uh, professor's uh, desk and looking at all his papers. And he said, oh, okay. And he threw up all over the desk, <laughs> all over the leather, went anyway in the papers, wiped his mouth and walked out the door down to uh, uh-huh. the auditorium. And I had to clean up, so I missed the first part of (laughs) his speech. But the rest of it, the reading of poetry and the talk, I absolutely loved. And the next year, when he came back and went to Washington, D.C., he called me in Baltimore and asked if he could come up, and I said, sure. So uh, that was our friendships. Oh, Start. I, I hope the professor kept the paper upon which <laughs> but and, but the other obviously the most other most important person you met during that period at the university was of course Bill. Um, you attended Bill Starin, who you later married, a great American novelist. But and and he was coming along to talk about his new novel, Lie Down in Darkness. That's right. So what was that like? And did he make a mark on you or not? Absolutely not. (laughs) I was, you know, uh, doing poetry and criticism and was with all the little intellectual or rather big intellectual guys. They were all older than me because they'd come back from the service and were in... uh, I was one of only two women in uh, that big class. Uh, but we were commanded to come and hear uh, Bill Styron because there were very few uh, 
people of, you know, who were novelists, if any, in that groove. And so we all went and we listened to him and he was very, very nervous and he didn't speak well. And uh, we all clapped and went home. So I had really no impression of him until I went to Rome and met him again there. Because you got to Rome. very different. <laughs> yeah, you go to Rome to the American Academy. Right. And I think he's coming to Rome to collect. Uh, he's pre to Rome. Yeah, he's pre to Rome prize. Uh, he doesn't know very many people there. And someone says that they he should call up you and then you end up meeting him. No, that's not All quite right. it. Uh, his dear friend, who was my teacher at Johns Hopkins and who had brought him there after he was a bestseller first novelist, wrote me and said, I know you just got to Rome. So did Bill Styron. If you get to the American Academy, look him up. He doesn't know anybody there. And I didn't either. So we met at the Academy. I mean, he looked me up after I wrote him a note. Well, then you go and see him, and then who's sitting next to him? But another famous character out of the 20th no. century. Truman Capote was there, wasn't he? Truman Capote. There were four of us at the table. When I went down, I went down the steps. I wondered if I would remember Bill Styron, but it was a little tiny cafe uh, in a famous hotel down in the basement, and we were the only people there. And so... It was obvious which one was Bill uh, Styron because there was a very short, curly, dark-haired uh, fellow from the academy that Bill had brought with him for protection. And on the other side was Truman Capote, who, of course, I'd read other voices, other rooms, and seen a picture of this young man who looked like he was 12, <laughs> not 25. And there he was. So obviously the other guy was Bill Styron. Uh, but, but by the end of the evening, uh, is it true that Truman Capote turned around and said, Bill, you should marry that girl? Yes. So Not in that do? tone of voice. <laughs> Bill, you should marry that girl. <laughs> so what had led him to, to say that? What happened? Just because Bill and I obviously... We're having a very good time together, yeah. and the conversation was pretty swell. And unfortunately, because both the guys that he brought with him uh, were telling him how much he, they liked his book, I said, me too. And I went home, and he called me up for a date instantly. And I thought, oh, my God, I said I read his book, and of course I didn't. So I ran all over Rome trying to find this American bestseller. And I went to the uh, library. The American library in Rome was my last choice. And they were just about to close. And I raced and I said, do you have a copy of Lie Down in Darkness? And they said, oh, sure. If you take out a library card and bring it back in two weeks. And they handed me the copy. And in those days, all the American libraries abroad had um, the same cover, which was uh, you couldn't read the front, but you could read the spine. And it said, lie down in darkness. So I took it, 
uh, got in bed, turned it to chapter one, and read chapter one and thought, he's cute, but he can't write. <laughs> well, the next morning I woke up and opened the book up to the title page, and it said, Lie Down in Darkness by another author. <laughs> and apparently you can't, you know, uh, copyright a title. You can copyright everything else. Yeah. So, well, anyway, whatever, you must do it. It worked, whatever. It worked. We had a wonderful evening. Luckily, he laughed. I was worried that he'd be offended, <clears throat> but he wasn't, and he gave me a copy of the real book. And then you seem to spend sort of a, almost sort of poetic, extraordinary time in Rome before you finally get married on May the 4th. That's right. And you, you can and you catch in Rome and you catch a third-class sleeper from Naples to New York together. That's right. And begin a new life in New York where, amongst other people, you knew, you meet uh, Tom Ginsberg, but also Mailer, Norman Mailer. Well, I had met Tom Ginsberg in Rome because he tried to persuade me not to marry <laughs> <laughs> Bill Styron. But... Uh, I had not met Norman Mailer. We had gone to Paris and met Peter Matheson and George Plimpton, who started the Paris Review with Bill. But I had uh, then I had not met Norman, and that happened. So in what New was York. what was Norman like? And I, I I read in the book that at some stage he has a, an extraordinary falling out with. They did. Bill. They did. He was. Um, fun but very pugnacious and very jealous of Bill and Norman, I mean Bill and James Jones's close friendship. And he did everything possible to worm his way into that. <laughs> well, anyway, I mean, you're in New York, but you soon moved to Roxbury. We did. In Connecticut, this um, kind of rural ideal. And you, you're there for what, the next 50 years? Or oh, something? yeah. Something like that. We are. And you said earlier that was, you know, within the 20 mile range, there were all these extraordinary characters. I mean, it's, right. It's... And I'm about to go see the movie of Maestro because one of the characters was Lenny Bernstein. And we knew that family quite well. And then, of course, there was also Arthur Miller, the player. Oh, yeah. He was up the hill. And when we first moved there, we saw Marilyn uh, in her little black dress and black uh, scarf yeah. uh, in the garden, but we never met her because they soon parted company, and I got to be very good friends with his next wife and daughter. But I think she was scared of intellectual intellectuals. Yes, yeah. so scared of them that she would not come to dinner. We were invited out to meet them a couple of times at, an, at other houses. They never showed up, and he... Uh, uh, did, did Arthur Miller sort of, uh, was he one of the people that sort of, um, sort of promoted sort of a sense of activism in you? I say that because actually Arthur Miller, years later, I'm talking about years later, I was one of the 
uh, founders of something called the Kurdish Human Rights Project in in the 90, early 1990s. Oh, when he was head of Penn? Yeah, and together with Harold Pinter and others. I mean, they were the few people who came together to highlight what was happening to Kurdish writers. And I didn't know that. That's interesting. But, you know, there was you know, very solid activist element, obviously. Oh, to definitely. Offer. International and national. And we know that that's something that, you know, you take up with a passion in the 60s and 70s. But was Arthur an influence? Was that there always, was that always there? With Was that, I'm not sure I understood. Well, you know, you be, you became was he? involved in Amnesty International you began to take up the cause of freedom around the world. By and I saying, ran Penn's Freedom yeah. Right Committee yeah. for under but Was Arthur. Arthur a big influence on that, or was that just something you were interested in anyway? I think I was interested anyway, yeah. and Arthur was both a neighbor and a playwright whom I admired tremendously, and we had trips together as friends uh, and as political. Uh, companions, but I don't know how else to answer that. No, no. Well, but during that period, you also um, had James Baldwin. Well, he really became a close friend because he lived with us for uh, almost a year. And that was the time when Bill was writing uh, The Confessions of Nat Turner. He was just beginning it. Right. And Jimmy Baldwin, at dinner one night, convinced him to do it in the first person which was very interesting because Bill had tried the beginning of it both ways and Jimmy was, you know, across the lawn in Bill's studio and Bill was back in the house. But they had dinner every night and I with them after I put the kids to bed. But there was quite a reaction, wasn't there, from from black writers to him in trying to inhabit oh, is it an t- African-American's voice. I mean... Just tell us a little bit about that. How did Bill feel about that? Well, Bill was very, very sad. At I mean, he got lots of prizes, of course, for the book. But then 10 Black Writers Respond was a book that came out because they were all angry with Bill, who did write it in the first person, and whom they felt was falsely impersonating their hero, who most of them had never heard of. He'd never been written about before. And the only thing that uh, appeared was a tiny little book of his actual confession, which Bill's father had sent him. Hmm. And Jay, this whole time, I mean, you're having children. From what I can, from the book, you're typing up his, his, his scripts and whatnot. Were you writing poetry because, you know, you were a poet? Oh, sure. So you I were writing, writing it and putting it in the drawer. I had published uh, quite a few yeah. and only, but, but I hadn't done a book before we were married. I'd published poetry separately. But I didn't care. I just stuck it in the drawer because I had these children one after another and I was having a great time. And I loved Bill's book. He only wrote a page or two a day, and I would type them with my two fingers the next morning before I dealt with the kids. And I was perfectly happy in this lovely little spot. And did you, I mean, I, I, I think I heard a story, I can't remember whether it was in the book or not, but you, you gave him some critical advice on Sophie's Choice once in terms of how to sequence it. 
Is that right? That's true. <laughs> he read me. He came down and, you know, one morning, he didn't ever get up in the morning, but he did this one morning and came down barefoot and said, um, I've had a dream about a, a woman <laughs> who lived, a beautiful woman who lived upstairs from me uh, in my little Brooklyn pad. And uh, she had been at Auschwitz. And last night, I had a dream about her. And it was so vivid, I'm going to stop the marine novel I'm writing and write about her. And he did. It took him seven years. And so I lived through a lot of that. But the only contribution I made was when he read me the wonderful chapter which he wrote first, which was Sophie's choice of which of her two children to keep and which to let be taken away to be killed. And I said, if that's your first chapter, there's not a mother in the world who's going to read chapter two. Can you save it? Mm. And he laughed, and he saved it, and came out better than it had been, and in the right place. Was he, did he thank you for that? Yes. <laughs> so this was a sort of, it's a rather idyll idyllic period, but then, you know, as you children are growing up, you, you then take up the cause of Amnesty International quite... Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how that happened. And... Oh, it happened because... Um, Bill and I were invited in 1968 when all of us Americans grew up to what was going on in the world and in our own country. Uh, we were invited to an Afro-Asian writers conference in Tashkent and we were the only Westerners invited because the Russians had read and were translating um, the Confessions of Nat Turner, not Sophie, but the Confessions of Nat Turner, and they thought Bill was a good revolutionary. And this was a um, conference of revolutionary writers, most of whom were dissidents and couldn't publish in their own countries. And we went there and became friends with all of these writers who all piled their manuscripts on me to bring back to the U.S., uh, hopefully to be printed. I took them to Yale. But I had listened to all their stories, and I was absolutely awakened and appalled. And when I came back uh, after I went to Yale, I went down to the State Department thinking, I'm going to tell them all oh, what I know. We have to help these writers. Well, of course, they patted me on the head and sent me home, and I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do with all this information? And Philip Roth and his girlfriend were our neighbors by this time, and his girlfriend, Barbara Sproul, said, I know what you can do with it. We're just starting our first Amnesty International USA group in New York. There's six of us come and join us. So that's how I got started. That's remarkable, um, what you say about the State Department, because, of course, on 
on another level, I mean, you had by that stage, I think you'd already moved here, as you said, in 1963. But at that stage, you had, had met quite a few other presidents. Yes. Uh, and, um, True. I, and, uh, you know, and I think actually didn't um, uh, Lyndon Johnson's wife, she was next door here. Did Wait you? a minute, who's? Lady Bird. Oh, Lady Bird Johnson. Yeah. I think you were, you were, Bill was invited to the White House in relation to the Civil Rights Act. Wasn't That's not, right. In the 60s. He was. And, you know, got thrown one of the pencils <laughs> 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 that our president threw out after he signed all these things. And I remember Bill coming home with one of those. And also, of course, you, you, you struck up a. I think a friendship with Jackie Kennedy. With Teddy Kennedy? No, Jackie Kennedy. Oh, with Jackie April, Kennedy. April 1962. That's true, when we were invited to uh, the White House for the Nobel Prize dinner, and we had no idea why we were invited. Everybody was a generation or two at least older than we were, and Jimmy Baldwin was living with us, so all three of us were invited. and. It, turned out that Jack and Teddy, no, sorry, Jack and Bobby were reading Bill's latest novel and they wanted to talk to him about it and that's why we got invited. So Bill and Jackie got along famously and the next summer they took us out sailing. Uh, they came from Hyannis to Edgartown and picked up us and our friends, the Marquands, and uh, that's how I think you were say that Bill described her as shimmering. Yes. Is that how she came across? Is that Absolutely. Because you were, I think, in that, that dinner, you were invited up, weren't you, to meet Ethel and yes. various others. We had never met any of them. And after dinner, when we were leaving, a young uniformed man came and said, uh, the president would like you to come upstairs to his uh, private quarters. So, of course, we did, and I sat down next to Robert Frost, whom I admired tremendously, and uh, Bill sat uh, in uh, the president's rocking chair. Yeah. Uh, he was full of not only liquor, but of medication, because he had, at my behest, flown in from Paris, where he was sick. So... Uh, Anyway, that's how we all got to be friends. And you saw JFK, I think, uh, was it Stephen um, Kennedy in New York just a few, just a, two or three weeks before he was assassinated in in Dallas? Oh yes, we were at his um, sister Jean's apartment in New York, and as we came down the stairs, we saw. Uh, President Kennedy uh, leaning on the uh, railing by himself and as we walked down he said what did you have how did you happen to get here I mean how did they persuade you to come they persuaded me and then he took Bill off and said to Bill I know what you're writing uh, because they would talked about it before uh, will you come down to Washington and help me with some of my black-white problems that I'm trying to solve. And Bill said, sure. The next week he was killed. 
So that was that. I suppose, you know, you talked about how after the end of the war in 1945, you saw America as, if you like, um, the good guy, the ones that would protect um, law and rule of law and, you know, sponsoring the United Nations and whatnot. And then, of course, we have Kennedy. How did you feel when he was assassinated? What was the feeling? in the? Oh, I was crushed. And like every other American, I remember exactly where I was and how I was feeling. I was in a dentist chair and the, we were listening to the radio and we heard this and the dentist assistant who was washing out my mouth poured all the water directly down my throat. I remember choking over <laughs> Kennedy's assassination. Oh, it was absolutely unbelievable and terrible. And by that time, we did know other members of the family and became good friends uh, with Teddy and Bobby, but especially Teddy, whom I worked with for 20 years after that. And I think, didn't Jackie come here the that next summer with with her children, Caroline and John Jr. Yes, on a little vacation, which was quite an amusing week. <laughs> Why is that? Well, partly because uh, little John John had come with his new pet rabbit, <laughs> which disappeared down a hole uh, in the wall between his and Caroline's bed in the room right between where Jackie and I were, because we have three upstairs bedrooms. And um, when I heard all the cries and walked in, Jackie was on the floor with her arm down the hole in our baseboard, but she couldn't get the rabbit out. <laughs> so then she, uh, we had three Secret Service men and she uh, placed one at each possible exit to our lawn from downstairs, thinking maybe they'll catch the rabbit because Jack was, uh, I mean, little John John was so sad about his rabbit disappearing. So at about three in the afternoon, one of them caught the rabbit <laughs> coming out of the house. And there were great cheers, and Jackie was congratulating them. And then she said, where's John John? Nobody knew. Nobody noticed that the, I can't remember if he was four or five by that time, but he had completely disappeared. And luckily, our caretaker from Connecticut, who had come up to visit and help us out uh, with this week, um, went up the beach and found little John John happily eating marshmallows at somebody else's uh, <laughs> picnic <laughs> and all was well. Well, I don't think they blamed you because I think it's true that virtually every summer after that they would come, wouldn't they? Ted Kennedy would come with right. all his nieces and nephews and whatnot. Absolutely. Sail down the sound just in front of your wonderful lawn here. Just what you're looking at. Over. <laughs> Right. And what about, I mean, just to be a bit salacious, Chappaquiddick, I mean... Oh, boy. Were you around then? Of course I was around. And our babysitter uh, had met Teddy 
and all his children uh, the year, the summer before, and she was back babysitting. But during the winter, he had hired her to come to Washington. She was quite terrific and beautiful, smart. And uh, Mary Jo Kopechny was another employee and her good friend. So when Chappaquiddick happened, the police immediately came here and asked <coughs> our babysitter to go and identify the body, which she did. So, um, in a way, that was another stage in Teddy's and our lives. And um, eventually, I worked with him for 20 years. I mean, you and described him um, in your book, you say, in my opinion, the best senator of our lifetime. Yes, why I believe that. that. Well, what, Why did you say that? Because he was absolutely devoted, not only to his family, his vast family with several generations of, with different horrors and delights, but uh, completely devoted to helping everybody everywhere and was on the right side politically of everything and crossed from Democratic to Republican sides with ease and persuading uh, people to do really, really good things and interested in human rights and uh, running the RFK, Human Rights Division, which he got me uh, to chair for quite a while. Yeah, and I think, I mean, he came to you about his, his potential presidential run, didn't he? He did ask you whether... Whether he should run? Yeah. Yes, it was right at this table you're sitting at now, and he asked me if I would invite uh, the president of MIT, who summered here and who had been part of Jack Kennedy's... Um, what shall I say? Anyway, in a cool yeah, yeah, his political chief. Uh, so he asked if I would invite him here for lunch with Bill and me and him, which I did. And he said, I wanted you to come here because uh, <clears throat> I'm being asked to run for president and I'm trying to decide whether to or not and whether the Chappaquiddick incident would make it, you know, really a long shot or impossible, uh, even though it's a few years ago. And the two men persuaded him that everybody'd forgotten about Chappaquiddick and that he'd be a wonderful president. And I didn't say a word because I didn't think they would have forgotten about Chappie. Yeah. And pretty soon, and he asked me to come to Washington and be one of his speechwriters. But when I arrived with Doris Kearns, who's now Doris Kearns Goodwin, um, the night before, he had shown on TV that he really didn't know why he wanted to run. <laughs> so that and he couldn't answer the question, of why do you want to run? Why yeah. are you doing it? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he stopped running. 
but he became the best senator ever, I thought, of my lifetime. And he had a very strong commitment for human rights. And it's around this time, especially in around ni- 1974, from just going to support Amnesty International, you were really flying around the world, um, not just documenting, but uh, trying to find out about, for example, you went to Chile, I think. You know, during Pinochet's the, coup. The that Pinochet. was my first serious trip for Amnesty International. So I went. And you had gone there because uh, Mrs. Allende, um, the, the president's uh, wife, the deposed president's wife, was making a speech at the United Nations. And I That's think, right. And she was going to give a report on the missing, including artists and US students. And so they sent you there. Uh, and you, you went there uh, right into the lion's den at that stage. It was martial law along with, I think, your daughter. My 17-year-old daughter who spoke wonderful Spanish, and I'm a hopeless linguist. Even when I've studied a language, you wouldn't want me to be in charge of speaking it. And so, you went, and you, um, so what do you do? You tell me, what, what, what was your, what was your um, task? And, there? Yeah. It was to find out uh, where and in what condition uh, all the political prisoners were. They had been (coughs) members of Allende's cabinet. Of course, he had died in the bombing of the Moneda. Uh, We stayed in a hotel right across from that smoking ruin. And um, the idea was that I would find out where and how they were So when Allende's widow, Hortensia, talked at the UN a couple of weeks after we were back, she would have all that information for them so they could help get them out of prison. And I think you came back and, I mean, the book, I won't, um, the book tells, you know, the story of your trip to, to, uh, to Chile and all the, sort of underground manoeuvres that you had to make in order, first of all, to meet distance, but then secondly, to get the information out. Uh, And I think you captured some of it in the New York Review of Books, but I think it's sort of particularly one account by uh, one person called Victor Yarra, and you talked, and I remember, just let me just read a little bit, because I want to ask you how, how these experiences affected you. You, spent, you say in the New York Review books, I spent many, year, uh, many hours there listening to the tortures. My turn came, and this is Victor um, Yara's account. My turn came. They tied me to a table. They passed cables over my naked body. They wet me and began to apply currents to all parts of my body, and the interrogator did not ask me. He assured me, you did this thing. I denied the monstrosities and the blows began to my abdomen, ribs, chest, testicles, etc. Elsewhere, you you also reported on, uh, this is you writing, how young pregnant girls had their nipples and genitals burned, their hair pulled out. Teenagers detained in a concentration camp near Santiago were subjected to sexual assault, electric shocks and burnings. These were the reports that you wrote. I mean, when you came out of Chile with... Uh, your seventeen-year-old daughter. I mean, were you changed? I mean, of how course, did this affect you? forever. Yeah. 
I didn't write poetry again for 20 years. I joined Amnesty. I mean, I had joined Amnesty, but this was, and I'd published a book just, in fact, I published two books of poetry around that time, but I didn't write it anymore for 20 years because it was, uh, that was private and my life was necessarily public. Yeah, and it just a remarkable series of uh, projects and, and um, human rights campaigns. And I just want to pick up just a few. Uh, you became involved in Charter 77, something that I um, sort of feel quite passionate about as a young oh, person. Really? I was, as a young person, I was caught up in the Czech Revolution in 1989, oh. and I remember Battle of Havel on that oh, night. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, uh, on New Year's Eve, talking to everyone in Venslitzer Square. And I remember being with the crowds earlier on during the revolution and how they all marched towards the Romanian embassy to daub it in red wax at the, uh, 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 you know, uh, in protest against Ceausescu, who had um, mowed down a number of people in, in one of the squares in Romania. So he was an extraordinary character, uh, Vaclav Havel. I'm so impressed that you remember all that. I wish I had been there. <laughs> but you went to see him with Kurt Vonnegut, I think. And uh, so, and and so, what did what did you make of Vaclav and Havel? Yeah. Oh, I absolutely loved him. How could you not? I mean, I met him when he was still underground in Prague when uh, William Lors was am our ambassador there. And so I, I stayed at the embassy and would, went off to see uh, the underground uh, in the daytime, which certainly included Havel, who was the most impressive and the most fun. And then I'd go back to the uh, embassy and sit next to the ambassador who would kick me under the table if he thought I was going to say something I shouldn't because, of course, uh, there were listening ears recording everything yeah. at that time. And uh, just reading your book, there are so many different uh, trips you made and uh, contributions uh, towards human rights, but I, I pick out one simply because I'm a, a UN mediator, but... A, I, I see that in um, Phnom Penh, uh, you you went there and you met, you said a man that you'll never, ever forget, and that was Sergio Vieira de Mella. And you said he's one of the most attractive men that you've ever met. But Sergio was then later, he was the first um, UN official to hold talks with the Kima Rouge, but then he went to... Iraq and was killed in Iraq. That's during, right. In, On what he thought was going to be his last yeah. mission for UN. He was going to leave after that. I'd seen him a couple of weeks before at Harvard, and um, he had said that, that this was the last. That was He couldn't accomplish enough. And, of course, Samantha Powers wrote a quite powerful biography. Oh, she was. But what was, was it? and is wonderful. Yeah. What, what was it about Sergio DeMello that, that sort of, his absolute I, dedication. Yeah. I mean, aside from being an attractive, brilliant man yeah. whom I had actually met in Asia, not at Harvard, 
you know, on one of my trips there, and I was so impressed with him and liked him so much always and couldn't believe what was happening, but Samantha Power also became a friend and stayed here with us. So, And then another man that you in the book, it's not my words, it's your words, and the man, another man that you met and said, I almost fell in love with him, was Andrei Sakharov, um, who, of course, was incarcerated in a mental institution in the Soviet Union. And you had somehow got into Soviet Russia to meet him with Robert McNamara, of all people. What was it about Sakharov that made you almost fall in love with him? Um... His dedication to everything that was right and his understanding of everything that was wrong in his own country and the world and the fact that he had somehow survived this incredible um, world which had turned against him and uh, kept him, well, I won't go into all of that. Mm -hmm. But he was absolutely a remarkable, kind man, and I was so impressed they had asked for me to come and meet him. And so how could you not almost fall in love with somebody like yeah. that? Well, his wife was also very, very uh, involved in the defence of the Kurds and their human rights and that organisation. Yes. As well, so I met her and felt very much the same way about her. But apparently... Uh, Robert McNamara, of course, you say in the book that he not only described him as a moral man, but began to also think very badly of his own role in Vietnam and, and started almost crying. Yes. Is that, was that well, right? Yes, because I had never thought of him as a moral man, to be honest. <laughs> and when he started, you know, at dinner in Moscow... Yeah with me and, and the head of uh, MIT. We were just the three of us who had, and he was tagging along right. with our meeting with Sakharov. And so the night after we met him, and it was the three of us sitting and eating potatoes and drinking vodka in a little cafe, and he started to cry and cry and Oh, we didn't know why, and finally he said, it's because I'd been in the presence of such a great moral man, and I am so aware of everything I did wrong and everything that I'm not, that he is. And then he went into Vietnam and other things, and uh, he had tagged along with us to Sakharov, but that really opened him up. And uh, he didn't admit it to the rest of the world for quite a few years after that. But we felt that we had witnessed something very private and we didn't tell anybody. But one, one other character that connected up with the Vietnam War, who perhaps you were less forgiving about, was Henry Kissinger, because from the book... There are numerous instances, I think, uh, including Catherine uh, Graham, who is constantly trying constantly. to get you around a table with uh, Henry Kissinger, and you just consistently refuse. Yes, but she tricked me 
quite successfully a couple of times. Well, tell us about that. Then. Oh, my. <laughs> well, once she called me and said, uh, can you come over and play tennis? And I said, Kay, you know I'm not going to come on a weekend when you have Henry Kissinger. And he, she said, that's the point. I bought a place uh, uh, on a, another pond, and I'm taking Henry to see it, and we need a fourth for tennis. Will you come and play with my other guests? So I agreed, and when I walked up the hill to where uh, the tennis court was on her land, there was Henry sitting waiting for me outside. So that was one of the times that she tricked me. I think she was just... so afraid that I was going to insult him that when we got to talk about the tall ships I had seen in the Valparaiso Harbor in Chile, where some of the uh, political prisoners were being held and where I saw the American Navy that Kissinger had ordered to go down to protect and to uh, further the revolution in Pinochet's honor. When I mentioned the tall ships, Kay dropped her tennis racket and ran out because she thought I was going to attack <laughs> Henry. I wasn't. I was sitting on the grass quite amused that I'd been had. <laughs> well, and I think you described him as wearing a Boy Scout uniform or something like that. Yes. I'm afraid that's what he was wearing. <laughs> and that amused me scene. even more. <laughs> and I think at one stage you also put a vase between you and him across the table. I'm sorry, what did you Well, say? I read on another occasion that you put a vase between him and you so you didn't have to look at him across the table. <laughs> but, I think there were several times when I didn't, but that was the last yeah. when it was Bill Lohr's 90th birthday party in Connecticut, and I was sitting at Bill Lohr's table, and there was an empty place across from me. I was with Bill and his children and another guest, and in the middle of dinner, who should walk in and sit in the empty chair but Henry Kissinger. So I took the big bouquet of flowers that were in the middle of the table and drew them right in front of my face so he wouldn't know I was there and I didn't have to look at him. Yeah. I'm sure he understood. <laughs> but we didn't have any words, I'm yeah. sorry to say, because we'd had some uh, all, really kind of amusing, <laughs> if awful, I don't want to take too much of your more time, but we couldn't end really without also talking about this period. So here you are, you know, flying around the world, doing all this extraordinary human rights activism. But then suddenly stuff starts happening back at home. And in 1985, um, you know, Bill has a breakdown. Right. Uh, and suddenly your attention, no doubt, is suddenly switched back. Absolutely switched. And you say in the book, you know, that he, you were baffled by his outbursts and his need to control the children and me. And then you also talk about suddenly he wanted me there all the time, exclusively at home. And in, in other parts of the book, when you're talking about the Roxbury years early on, he often wanted his time by himself. Yes. To write all his books right. and not to be disturbed. 
So something here has sort of changed and set him. I mean, what was all that about? Was it partly related to you becoming a public intellectual, you know, and, no. right, and being away? Or was it something simply within his own mental... I think symptoms? it was simply within his own mental uh, growing depression. Yeah. And I had never recognised the first symptoms of it, which maybe I should have from what he wrote. But um, it, it was catastrophic the two times that he actually broke down. Yeah. So I don't... I, I mean, I, I, I see that you included in the book uh, Polly, your daughter's jotted notes about that period. That's right. And she wrote at one stage, this is Bill talking to his children, I love you so much and the other children and your mother... You'll hate me for what I'm doing to do. I'm going to do to myself. My head is exploding. I can't stand the agony anymore. It's over now. Tell the others how much I love them. I've betrayed my life, all my books, and have been uh, about suicide. What a miserable waste of a life! I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dying. I mean, these extraordinary scenes. How did you ever get through it, you and your family? I wish my daughter, who's here visiting me now, could hear this and know why I included it. It was a terrible, terrible time, and she was a huge help getting me to get him to the Yale New Haven Hospital. Yeah. And, of course, he writes, he, he does recover. Thanks. He does recover. Thanks to... 15 good years yeah. we had after that. Thanks to your love and the support of all well, your children. Think... And then writes this extraordinary memory, uh, the memoir, you know, Darkness Vis Visible. Um, uh, where, yes. Where he's confronting the issue of depression and suicide. That's a really fine piece of writing. And the results of it and all the people he seemed to have helped who had read it meant a tremendous amount to him and helped in his recovery the first time. Uh, but it's it's quite interesting because you, you talked, and I think it's quite moving in the book, about how your children um, pulled together for his sake and mine. Yeah. Um, but you also talk about this code of silence where you say there was a code of silence, first of all, in your Baltimore family back home and then while you and Bill were living together that you seemed to sort of intimate in in um, in the book that part of the successful marriage was sort of knowing when to talk not to talk about certain things and you twice mentioned this idea of a code of silence and I forgot that I mentioned it twice yeah <laughs> So what's all that about and how did that work in relation to... I think at one stage you were saying when Bill had his second breakdown, he was constantly raising all the things that he may have done wrong in his life towards you or the children. And you, you were saying you wanted to look forward, you didn't want to be reminded of, of any of these incidents. Yeah, I regret that. I regret that. that. I yeah. wish I'd been... Yeah. big enough and strong enough to let him talk about all of it and to discuss it with him. I couldn't face going through a lot of those yeah. things again. 
And the code of silence was just um, the way we both felt about what we did when we were away from each other, which didn't affect our marriage, but might have affected other people's marriages. I don't know. Yeah. But we managed it just <laughs> fine. Uh, but, but actually, it was during this period that really you started then writing again in terms of... We started what? Your own poetry, writing poetry again and, and publishing. I did in, you know, like 1990, after he had recovered and after I decided I wasn't going to go to the UN, I was going to write poetry again. And that came about because my poet friend, Galway Cannell, uh, persuaded me to come out uh, to a poetry, to a literary um, conference out west. And I had as teachers to confer with for the two weeks, uh, not only Galway, but Sharon Olds and Robert Haas. And uh, the poetry police would take whatever we had written the night before and, you know, type it up and we had to discuss it all. And it really got me back into poetry and I abandoned any thought of the UN or political life after that, I mean, yeah. abroad. And I think with <clears throat> with our good friend, um, Jory Graham, who set up the poetry and, and the creative mind, yeah. Yeah, and that was wonderful when she came to Harvard. We had been friends as poets, and I had met her when she, she's much younger than me, but I had met her uh, with her father who was head of the Rome Daily American when Bill and I had gone back to visit. Well, let's just talk finally about Northern Ireland, if you don't mind, because uh, you've done a lot of work with a good friend of mine also, Tim Phillips, who... Uh, oh, yes. Uh, uh, that's know. how I met you. Yeah, exactly. And Beyond Borders has a very strong relationship with Beyond Conflict now. It wasn't called that back in those days. I know. The project um, of, uh, in times, uh, project of justice in times of transition. Who, God knows why he called it that. Um, but anyway, we were just together in um, in Belfast this year. I wish I had been there. I've been yeah. seeking every, and I, I'll quiz you after yeah. this on the piece. Well, it was it was phenomenal. I mean, all the major players who were involved in the Northern Irish peace process was there, most notably. Uh, Bill Clinton in terms of America and George Mitchell gave an, an extraordinary speech, you know, in his 90th year. But also amazing people who have just been on my uh, Beyond Borders podcast like Monica McWilliams. They were all there. It was an extraordinary event. I know. And I just was so, so crushed that I was not in physical shape enough to go. But I just wanted to talk about sort of something that you called beach diplomacy and it relates to Martha's Vineyard. And, of course, it is. I mean, just to set the story. I, I never mean, heard that term before. Well, it's your term and it comes from your book. It does? Yeah, you called it beach diplomacy. I think the way Tim would describe it was that, you know, he it is the kind of methodology of shared experience because what Tim did was, first of all, bring many of the leaders from South Africa to Northern Ireland. Right to meet with a lot of the Northern Irish political parties and paramilitaries to learn the lesson of the right. transition in South Africa. But then he also brought, if 
people like you, and then brought them to Harvard. Uh, right. Both Catholic. Oh, I see and what Protestant you mean about beach diplomacy. I forgot. And I think they that. all came to Harvard again to learn the lessons of other political transition and peace processes. But they weren't talking to each other. Talking. That was the problem. So, so, yeah. so you, I think. You brought them, they came down here, didn't they? They came down here to have a party, if that's what you mean <laughs> by beach diplomacy. I forgot the term. But um, yes, they all came down and um, Skip Gates, Henry Louis Gates, helped uh, organize that and they all landed by boat in Oak Bluffs and he gave a huge luncheon for them there and he came to me and said nobody's sitting with Sinn Féin would you go sit with them because <laughs> they wanted to be separate and they were separate had been separate at all the classes at Harvard but once they got here and came from Oak Bluffs here and went swimming and then sat on the beach for beach diplomacy and we had a big lawn party dinner for them and they got to meet Catherine Graham and, and a lot of other uh, people who, you know, prominent Washingtonians who were here for the summer. Uh, it sort of broke the ice. It's a remarkable um, vision and scene that you describe. But I think you knew Jerry beforehand, didn't you? You had knew Jerry Adams beforehand. Oh, I did. Yes, I'd known Jerry. So, so tell us just a little bit about Jerry and... Uh, <clears throat> well, I'd first heard him uh, in Dublin or outside of Dublin when they had a Sinn Féin meeting that I lucked into going to, which I hadn't expected to, but that was just me trying to see what was going on. So I had met him there just to say hello. And then I got into trouble when I was in uh, Belfast because I'd written a piece uh, for the New York Times, very uh, balanced about what was going on in uh, Northern Ireland. And they had cut out part of what I had written and made it look like I was anti Sinn Féin. We have become friends because I had to go apologize to him in his office in uh, Belfast because Carrie Kennedy, who was there with her sister, who later married Paul Hill, uh, told me I better get a bodyguard and go uh, to Sinn Féin because of what was published that morning. So I went with a bodyguard to uh <laughs> Sinn Féin's office and there was Jerry Adams sitting behind the desk and I started to explain myself and he burst into laughter and said of course that's what happens in the world and we actually became friends and I visited him his very first day in the United States when he was let in we were up in Maine together and I went with him uh, more than once to the White House and we stayed friends, and um, he actually sang happy birthday to me uh, the week before he went 
Did he? Because I, I thought you that got... That was in New York. I thought you got Carly Simons to sing Happy Birthday to him. I did get Carly <laughs> Simon to sing Happy Birthday to him on one of his birthdays. And then I happened to hear nightclub. him and Bill Clinton talk together a few days before they went to um, Ireland for the peace treaty uh, anniversary, and I knew I couldn't go. But I went to hear them talk, and he and Bill Clinton sang happy birthday to me, which was really nice, but I couldn't go to the peace treaty. And I have to say that I didn't recognize him because no. I hadn't seen him for a decade, but he began waving at me from the platform and we became friends again. So just talking about Bill Clinton, because um, there was one famous other sort of back channel stroke assistance you gave to some form of international uh, diplomatic dialogue. And I think that was when Bill Clinton was concerned about the um, Cuban-US relations because of the flimsy boats back oh, in the yeah. 1990s. I'll say. <laughs> and, and, and so there's a secret set of messages that are flat flying between the president of Mexico, Salinas, and, and, and Clinton. But somehow you get all involved. I don't, can, can well, you I, was, I was only involved by ignorance. Yeah, I got a call from Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and he and I had both been in Chile, and we'd ended up back-to-back -back pieces in a magazine called Ramparts, uh, which doesn't exist anymore. But you know, it would had pictures and it had our stories in, and then we were invited to Mexico both to talk, uh, and. Uh, Carlos Fuentes was one of our hosts at uh, this big gathering. And uh, I hadn't seen um, Gabo, as he was called, um, for some years. And he called me up at 11 o'clock one night and said, um, I know that Bill, oh, I'm sorry, I know that Carlos Fuentes is uh, coming up with his family to visit you for a week as they do every summer and it's only a couple weeks from now. I've moved to Mexico City. Do you think I should come with him? You always said I should come up. And I said, oh, that would be great. And he said, I'll let you know next week whether I can come in two weeks. And 12 hours later, Bill Clinton on a beach said, I hear the... Um, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is coming up to visit you. I mean, this is between 11 p.m. and 11 a.m. the next morning. And I thought, how did he know that? And I said, well, maybe. And he said, if he comes, please invite us to dinner because he's our daughter Chelsea's favorite author. Of course, Chelsea was 13, and I suspected nothing. I just was admirable. And it was all a big political setup between Castro and the president of Mexico, <coughs> who had decided that because Gabo was my friend, he'd be the perfect in-between person to come and talk to Bill Clinton, who they knew was spending a couple of weeks on the vineyard. And that's how it all happened at this table. And 
I was so ignorant and so was Bill. We thought it was just a cheery dinner party, but by the end of it, we knew it wasn't it because wasn't. It Jerry was. Adams had called from uh, Belfast in order to ask Bill Clinton to come and help uh, with the first possible peace treaty. And Bill, who feigned surprise, went and took the call at 11 p.m. at dessert time in our kitchen and came back and said, feigning surprise, gee, Jerry Adams called and asked if I would come to help with a possible peace treaty. And my thought was, wait a minute, he's my friend. Why didn't he ask for me? But he didn't know where he was calling. He called the White House and they just... Well, I think it's subsequently, it yeah, it was revealed that all and, of this was uh, and orchestrated. I, I was absolutely thrilled because the week after uh, you all met in Belfast, Bill Clinton and Hillary surprised me and came and sat on my porch for a couple of hours and talked to me about it. So I was incredibly pleased. That just brings me to uh, maybe round up with a few other questions. I mean, you know, you're talking about Hillary and Bill coming um, around here to, you know, um, High Hedge Lane. But now it seems that this is one of the most iconic places to visit in Martha's Vineyard. I haven't even begun to talk about all the different cultural figures that have been here from Carly Simons to Mia Farah or and I think even Frank Sinatra and and and, and Mia Farrow sailed along here. Oh yeah. Um, but it's luck. It wasn't planning. Oh, was it? You tell me. No, none of it was planning. It was all wonderful people. What was Frank? Like? Who became our Frank. friends? What? What was Frank like? Frank Sinatra. Oh, he was so much fun. We had wonderful times with him, and we met him only because our ten-year-old daughter. Susanna, the one who had come at 17 to Chile with me, <coughs> had dived off um, the pier at the Vineyard Haven Yacht Club next door to us right over there and decided she'd go swim and take a look at uh, the big boat that was out there, which she had heard Frank Sinatra was on. Well, Frank was courting Mia and, you know, Claudette Colbert and other uh, movie stars, I guess, were on it, but it was Frank's charter boat called the Southern Breeze, and Susanna swam around it, and the waters were getting a little choppy, and Frank looked down and said, little girl, do you want to come up on the boat? And she said, no, thank you. And, no, thank you. And um, Frank said to Mia, who, of course, was only 19 at the time. Uh, I think we better put a little launch down. Will you take that child home? I don't want her swimming around here or back by herself. So they put a little launch down, and uh, Susanna and Mia climbed in and came here to our little beach and our dock, and that's how I met Mia. And that night... Um, the second mate of that boat drowned out in front. And so the boat was impounded with Frank and everybody on it, and that's how we met. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, 
they got married and they got divorced and we stayed good friends with both Frank and Mia separately after that. These are just such extraordinary stories and I know you were talking about Carly Simon and I think Warren Beatty. Was that, was that, was that song really about him? Um, I think so. Okay. But I would never hold her to it. Okay. Listen, Rose, I know that people are come have uh, 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 lining up here to have tea with you. Unfortunately, we've literally run out of time. And yet, Rose, there's so much more I wanted to talk about, including your work in support of women during the Bosnian War, or the time you had dinner with Castro, who was clad in a pinstripe suit and mascot. And of course, Bill's second depression and eventual death. But perhaps I can just end by asking you how you feel about your life here on Martha's Vineyard since Bill's passing. Well, I never expected to end up here full time in this beautiful island that Bill and I uh, bought a house sight unseen, which you're sitting in right now. And... uh, and that was 1963, quite a long time ago now. In fact, it's our 60th anniversary, I think, of this house. But we only came in the summer and occasionally for Christmas or New Year's until I was, until Bill died. He died here and I decided not to leave, so I spent all winter here, very happily, looking out at the sea and not seeing people because I didn't want to. And then I went to um, for, to teach at Harvard for a couple of years as a fellow in the Kennedy School and would come down here on weekends. And I thought, why would I ever go back to rural Connecticut where I was had a very happy marriage and raised four children there for 50 years. But here I am, and uh, although I loved the rural isolation and a very cozy um, set of uh, neighbors, I'd say within one to 20 miles, we considered that the neighborhood. (laughs) And they, so many of them were artists and singers and actors and writers and theater people, that it was a very, very rich, wonderful rural life. And our children went to school together and so forth. And when I had to leave it, I was very sad. And I don't miss it at all. (laughs) (laughs) It's great being here. I have a lovely view and wonderful friends. I just want to thank you so much for spending the time with us. It's just such an iconic uh, story. Your story is an iconic story and it's, you know, and it has so many different dimensions. I'm very flattered that you think that. I just happened to be in the right place in the most interesting times, but it yeah. was luck. Yeah. Well, and also it's a, it's a window on to many different personalities that have come to dominate our, uh, you know, our last century and, and even this century. So... I was so lucky, so, so lucky. Oh, and I'm very lucky to, to be able to just get a little bit of a snippet of that life, but also a window onto our old world, so thank you very, very much. Well, you're really, really 
sweets and say all right. Yeah.